Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. If you write your own code and say, this is what I'm going to live by. This is what I'm going to live by. And if you have something that you've written down that you hold yourself to that standard, it's going to make it easier for you to hold yourself to that standard. As opposed to just having some unconnected thoughts in your head about what you might think might be right or might be wrong. When you actually write stuff down and you say, this is me, that has power. You see, there is some benefit to having a real code. I think this idea of developing a code is really powerful. What's the first step if I wanted to develop my own code? Welcome back, Jocko Willink. I don't even know how to describe you. You're like Superman. I'll describe you from the back. You're a decorated, retired Navy SEAL officer. You did all sorts of things with the SEALs, but you were on the podcast before talking about Extreme Ownership, a book I loved and highly recommend. We also talked about your first kid's book or maybe adult book that seems like it's for kids, Way of the Warrior Kid. Now, this book, which I think is just great, it's a must-read, it's an easy read, Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission. You continue talking about the warrior code and essentially the code of ethics and integrity and values that you yourself live by. And you explain it so well in this book that I think anybody can benefit and relate to it. But welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I wish I was as cool as you just made me sound, but <laughs> no, you, you're much cooler than I made you sound. So we'll 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 probably get to some of that. But um, your life's changed a lot since the last time you've been on the podcast. I feel like I feel like you've blown up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely changed 
and it continues to kind of change. And you've written uh, a couple more books. Right. You, you uh, uh, this is your fourth book. You just mentioned to me you're working on on another one. What's the what's the what's the next one? The mind. next one is called The Dichotomy of Leadership, and that comes out in September. It's back to me writing with Leif, who I wrote Extreme Ownership with. And in between those two, the book the book before Way of the Warrior Kid was called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Mm. So that was an adult book, but a lot of kids read that one as well. It sort of, it sort of can do both jobs, but that's just about sort of my personal operating system, both in thoughts and actions, because I got asked that so much that I just said, you know what, I'm just going to write this stuff down and, and give it to people. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like lately a lot of people, I think maybe because the lack of, I don't want to say religion or organized religion, but uh, the lack of a spiritual practice or some kind of higher level practice in today's society have led a lot of people to develop their own code for survival and really live by it. So like, I mean, I spoke to Jordan Peterson recently who has his book, uh, 12 Rules for Life. And I've spoken to quite a few people who have written down their code and they all overlap. They're not exactly the same. And and we talked, um, I remember, I remember I'm embarrassed by this now, but on the very first podcast you were on with me, uh, I mentioned to you early on, I, and I, I didn't mean say this in a mean way, but I felt like the challenge of interviewing you was that we have nothing in common. We have very similar backgrounds, very similar, uh, very different backgrounds, very different life experiences, and so on. But the reality is, particularly when I look at like the warrior code that you mentioned in this book, and and the extreme ownership concepts of of your other book, that actually somehow there must be more similarities than I thought because this is my code in large part, and I believe in extreme ownership. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like I get actually, to be honest, I get nervous. You look down on me because you've fought, you've, you've faced life and death situations, um, in, you know, the battlefield and I've maybe faced my own type of life and death situations, but certainly not, I've never been afraid of being shot for instance. Um, so I was actually a little intimidated and nervous that you would look down on me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's. Again, that's one of the major themes in this book is trying to get people to understand other people's perspective. And you shouldn't be looking down on people because I don't you don't know what people have been through. And people people in life, life life is very challenging and life is full of struggles, no matter who you are. And so to sit there and look at someone and think, well, that person has it easier, that person hasn't been through what I've been through, so therefore I'm better than them. That's just that's just not a good attitude to have at all. You know, so but but and maybe this is what you refer to when you say the 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 dichotomy of of leadership. I'm not sure about that title, by the way, <laughs> but uh, a lot of syllables in that title. Yeah, you know, and, and actually, just just so you know, uh, the the publisher who I was just talking to them today, and the they were saying, oh, we 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 should change the title, and then the editors were like, no, the title's perfect. So yeah, there's a lot of symbol uh, syllables in it. I'm not I'm not worried about it. It uh, it, it is what it is. Okay. Um, I have I have an idea for you to try, but I'll, but I'll tell you about it in a little, a little bit. But maybe the, dichot- the, the dichotomy that you might be referring to is think about what you just said about you know uh, you know paying attention to everybody's struggles and we've all been through something. But then think about that in the context of you going to war in the battlefield and you know you were a top ranking seal, which is you know the the hardest thing to be ever practically. And you had to make 
life and death decisions, not only about yourself, but about others that were sort of related to judgment. I mean, you had, here you just said this very saintly thing. And then uh, the dichotomy is you also go to war with where there's g gunshots fired. And how do you, what's, just help me connect, connect the two. And I mean this in the, in the, I'm curious, I'm sincerely curious. Yeah, I mean, for the dichotomy part, there's dichotomy, there's so many dichotomies as a leader that you have to balance. And that, that's what it's about. It's about balancing those dichotomies. And, and the one that I'll kind of riff off of what you just said is, for instance, if you're in the military and you're in charge of a military unit, you're supposed to and do end up caring about the guys that are in your unit more than anything else in the world. I mean, you love these guys. They're your brothers. That You'll do anything for them. The dichotomy is that you're going to take those guys that you care about more than anything else in the world, and you're going to task them and send them on missions that could get them killed. And I don't know if there's any greater dichotomy than that right there. I know that for me personally was the hardest thing to struggle with is, look, I've got these guys that I love and I want to take care of. And at the same time, I have a mission and we have a mission that we need to execute. And so balancing that dichotomy is very challenging. And that's just the beginning of the dichotomies of leadership. There's all kinds of them. Right, because then there's the dichotomy that you're sending them against people who may be bad people, but they also grew up in tough situations that, that were often out of control, their control. They were often manipulated by their leaders and in, into wearing belts with explosives and then killing themselves. Like many of these people had really hard, sad lives, but you're also stopping them from killing others, even children. It's, it's difficult. Well, yeah, there's a huge dichotomy there because while we're on the battlefield, we, we are, for one, as you said, we're looking for bad guys and we're, we're supposed to kill those bad guys. And at the same time, there's innocent people that we're supposed to protect. So you've got guys that are being told, hey, it's okay to kill people, but it's you, what your job is to protect people. So yeah, it's very challenging. And even those bad guys are not always bad guys in the sense that they've often been manipulated by their leaders to, you know, they've been brainwashed or, you know, manipulated to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done if they had grown up in a different part of the world or in a different family or whatever. Yeah, and it gets even worse than that because there's people that are actually innocent that die in combat. There's civilians that get killed and it's a travesty and it's, it's horrible to see and it happens. And so, yes, there, this is very challenging. War is, war is a very challenging environment to be in without question. I mean, and it shows even, I'm not even on page one here of, I'm, I'm thumbing through the book right now, Way of the Warrior Kid, uh, Mark's Mission. Um, you know, in your dedications, this book is dedicated to the men of SEAL Team 3, uh, especially uh, Mark Lee, Mike Monsoor, Ryan Job, who lived and fought and died as warriors. And that was the, those are the first three people you acknowledge. Yeah. Were they people who were in your unit that, that yeah, worked for you? Were, those guys were tasking a bruiser and, well, two of them were killed in action and one of them died in, died of wounds. Ryan Job died of his wounds w when we got back. And then, um, of course, you, you mentioned Chris Kyle, who's, who's known as the American sniper from the, the, the movie. Um, I hadn't heard you mention Seth Stone before. Was he someone who was in your unit? Yeah, or? he was in tasking a bruiser and he died this year in a parachute accident. Hmm. So this is, uh, again... You know, it's not like four of my best friends have died in the past couple of years. Like these are really, you know, life-changing moments. How do you 
particularly in the heat of battle when you have to recover very quickly to protect the rest of your unit, how do you bounce back from such a tra traumatic incidents? Like your your one of your closest friends blowing up or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll tell you exactly what I did. I focused on work. That's what I did. I focused on we we still had a job to do, and you know I th I don't think Americans are very good at the whole process of death. Whereas other cultures, they have a a system and a process they go through. It's this many days of this, a day of that, and then it's over and we move on. Right. Americans don't really have a good system like that. It's there's there's too many, too much, too many muddled I guess cultures that have come together that we're really not sure how to handle death. And that becomes problematic for a lot of people. So the what we did was like, okay, we're gonna stand down, meaning we're gonna we're gonna take a couple days, we're gonna have a ceremony to see our friends and pay respect to our friend that died. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna go back to work. We're gonna lock and load our weapons, we're gonna go back to work because that's what we're there to do. And also that is what our fallen friends would absolutely want us to do. They'd want us to go and do our job and carry out the mission. And so while on deployment, for me, that's the process. And then you, and then it, the process gets a little jumbled up when you come home and now all of a sudden you don't have that mission to focus on anymore. And that's where a lot of guys will have trouble there as well because now you've got the time to reflect and think about what happened during deployment. So that can be challenging as well. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, in America, we don't necessarily have like this process of dealing with death. And part of that is because we're so afraid to say anything about other cultures and other belief systems and so on that we almost have nothing because of that. And I think, that, again, this relates to you sort of have to, you have to develop your own code to survive. Like you mentioned, returning veterans who haven't dealt with this and maybe they've suppressed some of the pain and they haven't dealt with a way to kind of process it through their emotional infrastructure. There's, what is there? What are the statistics? Like one or two suicides a day of veterans, returning veterans. Yeah, there's actually insane statistics on veterans. And, and the number that gets thrown around and used is 22 veteran suicides a day. And again, I've, I've seen that number higher and lower, but it, whatever that number specifically is, it's absolutely too many. You know, and and I know I'm I'm digressing a little from the book, and I really want to get into the book because I have things bookmarked and questions. But what what can someone? So so I'm not necessarily a believer in in wars or or the the 17 year war we've been fighting overseas, but that has nothing to do with veterans. What's the best way someone listening to this can help uh, uh, veterans and returning veterans and even people over there in terms of? Reassimilating back into society and dealing with what they dealt with over there. Well, one of the, one of the biggest things that I t talk to people about is finding a new mission, right? So when guys come home and they get out, all of a sudden, you know, when you're in the military, you you at least have a, a broad mission. You know what you know what your day to day job is. You know what you're trying to get accomplished. There's this kind of, and if you're a patriotic person, you look and you say, okay, well, I'm doing this for for. God and country, and you say, okay, so this is, I'm doing something good, right? So you're in that category. If you're in the military and that's what you're thinking, you're in that category. And there's a lot of guys like that in the military. Most people in the military support what the military is doing. Now, when you get home and you get out, what are you doing every day? Well, if you don't find a new mission 
which means to me a new job, whether that new job is being a great dad, whether that new job is getting better at jujitsu, whether that new job is starting a business or going to work somewhere. If you don't have something to fall into, you're going to start to meander around. Mm. And the meandering mind of a veteran coming home from a hard deployment is, is not going to work out well. Now, I just did a, a, a the, for the first time on my podcast, I did a, a three-part series and I released all the podcasts at once. And, and I have to talk about this a little bit because it- Sure. The, the first podcast was about a guy named Chesty Puller who's the most famous Marine, US Marine of all time. He, is, he rose from private to general. He's fought in five wars. He was awarded five Navy crosses, which is the most, he's the most highly decorated Marine of all time. He's, and he's the most famous Marine. And he had a son and his son joined the Marine Corps. And his son, 1968, joined the Marine Corps and went to Vietnam. And when he went to Vietnam, he was there for just under three months, got into a firefight, ran through the jungle, hit what they used to call a booby trap, what we now call an IED. It was huge. It ripped off his one leg at the hip, the other leg just below the hip. A lot of his fingers on both hands were gone. He was as close to death as a person can come. They saved him. They brought him back to America. He went through this traumatic experience of trying to recover from that. He couldn't wear prosthetics because he just didn't have enough of, of his leg to, to put prosthetics on. He was confined to a wheelchair. He started drinking. He was on narcotics. He, his wife was pregnant before he went to Vietnam. I, I failed to mention that. But, so his, but he did have a child. He had, he had a son. And then he kind of got his act back together. He went to law school. He got a job at the Pentagon. But this whole time he's drinking. And finally, someone gets him interested in politics and says, hey, you should run for politics. He runs for Congress, I think, in Virginia. He loses the race. He's in debt. He goes back. He's drinking more. He feels like a loser. He feels like he doesn't have anything to contribute. He, he eventually drinks so much that his wife says, okay, you know, you got to go to rehab. He goes to rehab. He comes out. He recovers. He decides while he's in rehab that he's going to write a book to tell his life story. He comes out. He writes a book. Incredible book. The book is called Fortunate Son. The book comes out in 1993. It kind of climaxes when the Vietnam War Memorial was built in Washington. And that is like a healing process for him because he feels like the veterans are finally getting the recognition that they, that they should get from Vietnam. The book closes with that. The book goes on to win a Pulitzer Prize. It's, it's incredible writing, great book. Oh, and, and that book also, also explains and, and documents the death of his father and in a horrible way, just decaying and, and, and incontinent and blind and just this great, almost superhuman. As a matter of fact, never, never mind almost, a superhuman figure that just decays in front of his son's eyes. And there's scenes in there where his dad is watching his son when he comes back from Vietnam. And his dad, again, this, this pillar of, of strength for the Marine Corps, his father can't even speak because he's crying so much. He can't even, can't even put words. Words can't come out of his mouth. So the book ends, he wins the Pulitzer Prize, 1992 or 1993. And after that happens, at some point, 
he somehow fell and broke his hip. He goes back to the hospital. They put him on opiates again to relieve the pain. He starts drinking again. His wife, at some point, they separated and he killed himself. Hmm. And, you know, that story, and, and the, the interesting thing is, as Chesty Puller is, as well known as Chesty Puller is in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps has a, has a, a mascot. It's a dog. It's a bulldog. And the, the bulldog's name is Chesty, and it's always been Chesty. They've, they're on Chesty number 15 right now. So everyone in the Marine Corps knows who Chesty Puller is, but very few people in the Marine Corps know about Chesty Puller's son, Lewis Puller, and what he suffered and what he went through. And so there's a problem with that. The problem is, and, and yet we have a real suicide problem with veterans. And so that is why you need to bring this stuff to light. People need to understand and recognize what they're going through. People need to understand and recognize that other soldiers and Marines and service people come back and feel the same way that they do. And that, that way they can open up and they can discuss what they're going through. Because this is another thing that's come out. When World War II ended, first of all, when you went to World War II, you went and you weren't coming back until the war was over. When you came home, you got on a ship with you know, 500 or 1,000 other guys that just went through what you went through. And you had a seven or eight week voyage back to America of sitting around and talking with these guys and sharing your experiences and getting things off your chest. Well, in Vietnam, you, you just rotated in and then 365 days later, you got on an airplane, you were back in San Francisco or you were back in wherever, New York City, and you were walking around. There was no debrief time. There was no one to talk to. There was no one to get these things off your chest. That was very problematic. And, and to me, that's proof that talking about these things is so important for people. You have to discuss what you've been through so that, uh, so that you can get it out and you can, you can bounce those ideas off of other people and they can listen to you and say, okay, I, I, I felt that same way or here's, here's something that I did that it would help. So the thing that you need to do, in my opinion, as, as a veteran, is you need to link up with other veterans, you need to talk about what you've been through and you need to find a new mission. I mean, that's, it reminds me of two things. One is uh, you're, it's almost like like an AA type of scenario where you need not not that they have addictions, but they have trauma, and they need to talk to other people with similar trauma and learn that you know this is relatable, this is survivable. There's maybe uh, a, a way to to surrender to what you can't control and and make your way through life. Yeah, and and, and the other thing is it reminds me is we're 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 tribal animals at heart. We can't deal with these things on our own. We were ne- biologically we were never meant to deal with these things on our own. We had our tribe for a million years, and now we're sort of put on our own in today's society, which doesn't necessarily conform to the rules of evolution, even though our minds and bodies do. Yeah, and the third podcast that I did in that series because I didn't want to end on that horribly depressing story is I, I brought a, f- a friend of mine on named Jake, Jake Schick, who he was, his, he was a third generation Marine. He was in Iraq. He got wounded pretty badly, arm, lost a leg, hand pretty badly wounded. And he came back and it was like, he was on that cycle of drugs and then addiction and depression. And luckily he got out of it. And that, you know, I wanted to show everyone and the things that he talked about, the way he got through it. And he runs an organization actually, 
you, you know, talk about how you can help. There's an organization called 22 Kill. And if you look at that, you can see what they're doing and you can donate money to that if you want to help out veterans. But that that organization is to help not just veterans, but also law enforcement, you know, firefighters that have been through traumatic experiences. It's there to help. So that was how I closed out that particular series because I wanted people to understand that you can get through this and there's there's a way a way through it. Well, then I've got to listen to those those episodes on your podcast. Um, so now, the w- way of the warrior kid, Mark's mission. Uh, this I find to be such a a, a great and concise way to uh, emphasize your own code of living, and uh, uh, and this is related, I think, to how not only veterans can help themselves, but how anybody can. This is really a code for anybody. But uh, maybe before we get into the details of the book, I just wanted to kind of run through the code and I have some some questions. So the warrior kid wakes up early in the morning. And this is something I always agree with, but I have a question uh, about that in a second. What time do you wake up? I usually wake up at 4.30. Right, because I see your tweet, like yeah. 4.30, 4.24. It's always your watch. <laughs> what kind of watch is that? This is a uh, discontinued... Timex Iron Man that I've been, I have about six of them in total. Well, I'm down to, I'm down from like eight. I think I'm down to five or six because I take parts to rebuild when they break. But yeah, they don't make them anymore. I've been wearing the same watch for about 25 years. Wow. And uh, what time do you go to sleep? I usually go to sleep around 11. So five hours, do you think? Five and a half. Five and a half. Do you think, so normally every study suggests the average person needs, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep. Do you think, through your massive training, you've shortened that to five or five and a half? Or do you think, you know, some people are just genetically equipped to? It's, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it's genetic. My, I have four kids. My oldest daughter is very similar to me in a lot of ways. And when she was in high school, she's in college now, but when she was in high school, she would be, I'd go to sleep at 11 o'clock and she'd be up studying and I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning and she'd be up studying. Mm-hmm. So she got the genetic, there's a term for it, it's called a short yeah. sleeper. And so she got that. My second daughter, she, she won't, she'll sleep until you drag her out of bed. My wife sleeps, you know, she's a, she's a, I would say an average sleeper. So there's a genetic component to it. And, and then on top of that, just, just trying to set the schedule and maintain the schedule, I think is important as well. So I think it's a little, I think it's probably... As far as the amount of time that you sleep, need sleep, I think it's different for different people. And I don't encourage people to not sleep enough. That's not healthy. Yeah. And of course, there's people that you know say, "Why don't you go back to sleep? This is unhealthy. This is you can't. You don't have proper cognitive function if you don't sleep this much." And it's like, "Hey, man, sleep as much as you need. Like, I'm I'm not trying to take your sleep away from you, but don't be lazy, right? There's a difference. Like, you know when you should get out of bed. That's the point. When you should get out of bed, get out of bed." So, so what do you think is more important in terms of discipline, the, the number of hours you sleep, if you know this is the number that keeps you healthy, or the time you wake up? Well, I think without this just going into a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. if what you should do is you should sleep, you should wake up at the same time every day. That's the first step. Because if you, if you sleep in a little bit today, well, guess what? That night, you're not as tired, so you go to bed later. And then the next morning, you're more tired, so you wake up a little later, and you get your cycle thrown off. So wake up in the morning at the same time every day, whether it's four, whether it's six, whether it's eight. Wake up at the same time every day and establish that routine and that pattern, and you will feel better about it. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I used to do that. 
I used to uh, live outside the city. I'd go to sleep at 10, wake up at 6, I'd go to sleep at 9, wake up at 5. I, I had a, a, a pretty tight routine. Now in the city, sometimes things happen at night and then I'm thrown off. Yeah. It's so easy to throw me off here in the city. So I've got to, got to figure that out. Um, the, war, the warrior kid studies to learn and gain knowledge and asks questions if he doesn't understand. If he doesn't understand. So uh, the question I had there was, how does he know what to, where to study? <laughs> he says, studies to learn, but what do you study? Well, this in, that, in, in the warrior kid books, study what you're being taught in school, number one. Wait, but sometimes what you're being taught, like I did this with my daughter the other day. She told me a fact and I said, um, where did you where did you learn that fact? That doesn't really feel true to me. And she said, "This is my history textbook." She showed me in the history textbook, and I said, "Let's just Google this and look at this fact from a couple of different angles." And we found that it was most likely incorrect. And so I just I always just wonder. I like I like the asks questions part because I think that's almost more important than when I mean, you have to study in order to improve. But the asking questions is so integrated with that. You, there's no one source to study. Yeah, well, the second part of, of what I was going to say is like, okay, you get what you are told to learn in school, and you have to study that to learn and understand it. And, you know, again, as an adult, we start to see that there's a way, there's a lot to learn beyond what you're taught in school. But the other part of this is learn about what you're interested in. Study what you're interested in. And this is a question I've been getting uh, from my kid's podcast, which is people say, you know, my kid hurt and he's got surgery and he can't, pl he can't work out right now. He can't play his sport right now. What should he do? Well, play guitar, learn to read, learn to paint, learn to draw. Do, do, there's so many other activities to do when you can't physically, when you can't, for instance, work out, do something else, learn yeah. something else. Yeah, and I guess a lot of people, you know, so a lot of people listening to this might have had um, this jobs, you know, the same job for the past 10, 20, 30 years. And they've almost... I'm not, this is not criticizing them, but I think it happens to a lot of society. They lose that muscle to figure out what it is they love, what, what drives them. And how do you think they can rekindle that muscle? For me, just digging, digging into the world, mm. you know, digging into the world and seeing what's out there. Yeah, that's one thing that, you know, with my podcast, when I started my podcast, I thought to myself, well, I reviewed three books. The first like three or four books that I reviewed. And I said, yeah, okay, why'd you give me one star on my book? No, I'm just kidding. Did I give you one star on your <laughs> No, book? no, I'm just kidding. No, I was going to say, uh, when, I, when I started doing the books, I was like, well, I, I don't know if I'll be able to do many books because there's not that many books that really, that I really want to cover, that really had an impact on me. And then I stretched it to one more book and I said, wow, you know what? I didn't, I didn't really read this deep enough the first time I read it. This is really good. And there's a lot of information that I didn't think about. And then I stretched it to one more book and I said, oh my God, there's so much good information that I didn't read this deep enough last time. And what I realized within 10 books, I said, I never will be able to cover all the books that I should cover. Because when you read them with intent and you read them with curiosity and you read them with questions, there's so much more there. And that's what I've been doing. So I recommend pick up a book and go down the rabbit hole. Well, and it also, you, you, you've mentioned your podcast a lot. And we were talking about your podcast before we started this podcast. You that was probably something you never did before, and you love it. You love pocket. You tried it, and you love it, and you keep doing it, and, you, and it keeps expanding, and it, and you keep expanding the things, the formats, and the things you're willing to try. Like you have a three part series, which is a narrative. You're reviewing. You start off reviewing books. So it seems you know again 
for you, what do you, what do you, what's, what's the inner compass looks like that lets you decide what to say yes to and what to say no to? Because you can't try everything in life. You have to determine what to say yes to. I think I just look at things and do what I'm interested in mm. and do what I like. And that's that's kind of weird. And I feel weird when I say that because it feels but that's like the a, inner compass part. It feels like a real selfish thing to say, right? Mm. I do what I want to do and I do what I like. But but that's actually what I do. You, you know, I I even when I again going back to the podcast, people would say, Well, you know, you, you should people like to listen to one hour podcasts. If it goes over an hour, people get a little bored. And they'd say, well, you can't just, you can't just talk yourself on the podcast because people get bored of hearing one voice. And they'd say, look, you can't just talk about war and atrocities because people aren't going to want to listen to that because it's too heavy. And those things were all things that I like to talk about. And it's like, I like to talk for a long time when I go into a subject. And sometimes my co-host doesn't have anything to say for very extended periods of time. And so everything that people told me to do in order to make my cod podcast listened to by more people. I haven't done any of them. And there's plenty of people that listen to it. So there's a selfish part of me that does what I like. And, and that's what I'm going to do. Well, I always say if two people are doing the same thing and one person loves it and the other person doesn't, the person who loves it is going to win most of the time. Yeah, no doubt. So Because they're going to just be able to study and, and figure out all the nuances that the other person might not see at all as opposed to just conforming to rules that everyone sets for, sets for them. For sure. So, um, all right. The, the warrior kid trains hard, exercises, and eats right to be strong and fast and healthy. And I, I'm going to add to that um, to be creative also. Because if you don't have energy, all these things are really designed to, to give you energy. And if you don't have energy, you can't do anything. Yep. You're not going to be creative if you're sick in bed. Very true. So I think this is an important rule. I don't, you know, I exercise maybe 90% of what you do. Mm-hmm. And, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't exercise that much, but I make sure I move enough that. Yeah. When you it, exercise, how do you feel? Uh, great. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, there you go. Yeah. You know. Um, I should do it more. <laughs> uh, the warrior kid trains to know how to fight so he can stand up to bullies to protect the weak. And I think I think again I'm going to look at the metaphorical view there. But how do you how do you see that? Yeah, I see it exactly as it's written, really. So, so but but like for instance, I'm not going to protect the weak by beating up the bully. You, there's and you even refer to it in the book. There's other ways. You're just part of this is training the mind yeah. to understand the all aspects of of what a bully might be. Yep. And it's interesting. So I got asked a question today by someone else. You know, it's like, well, with this warrior mindset, won't parents be scared of kids becoming aggressive? Uh, you You deal with that in the book. Yeah. So the answer is the more skilled someone is, the more confident someone is, the less aggressive they have to be, the less posturing they do because they have the confidence that they don't need to posture. So in my mind, the more someone has the ability to fight. And it's not just in my mind. From my personal experience, the more I learned about fighting, the less I felt the need to prove that I knew how to fight. So when I first got in the SEAL teams, I didn't really know how to fight. And we'd get in dumb bar fights and fist fights with people all the time. The more I started studying jujitsu and the better I got at it, I realized it was stupid for me to be out in a bar where I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to hurt somebody or, or prove to some other drunk guy that 
I can beat him up. Like that's just a loser. And so the, the more confident that I got in my own skills, the less I acted like an idiot. I think there's several layers of confidence there. There's, there's the confidence that you knew jujitsu, meaning you could kill the other guy. There's also the confidence that you had worked hard at developing a discipline of, of mastering a discipline that maybe this other guy wasn't fortunate enough um, or brave enough in some ways to, to master. And so why even bother with this guy? So, it's, so there's an inner confidence too, along with the physical confidence. Yeah, no, that's, that's very correct. You know, it reminds me, this is a weird analogy, it reminds me of the stock market. Mm-hmm. Like often a company will be doing well, but maybe the stock's not doing well. And people will say to the CEO, put out a press release. Why don't you say how good your company's doing? And this, uh, a great response that I love to hear from a CEO is, we've got the goods. We don't need to hype ourselves up. We're, we're doing great. We're making a ton of money. Sooner or later, you know, investors, they're not going to ignore a company that's doubling their income every year. Yeah, so, very similar. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, uh, <coughs> the warrior kid treats people with respect and helps out other people whenever possible. Which I think actually is really related to the prior one, which is standing up to bullies. Because you also want to treat bullies with respect. And and we see this in the book. Uh, can I give away something from the book? Yeah, you can it's give pre- away. It's fairly early on. Yep. Um, where, uh, uh, you know, Mark, the ne- Uncle Jake's nephew... He's having a problem with the bully in school. Yep. Nathan James. Nathan James. I'm James. I, I took offense, actually, believe it or not, when I, when I, I read the name. character after you. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, he looks like me a little bit, too. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, Uncle Jake asks Mark to observe, and Mark's just angry and observes at first. You know, oh, he talks a lot. You know, he's mean. Um, and Uncle Jake's like, that's a fail. And, uh, you know, observe again. And then you really start to get get a more holistic, like 360-degree picture of what this bully might be like. Maybe he has problems in this part of his life. Maybe he has problems in this part of his life. And so it comes out in a need for status on the playground somehow. And so again, I think, you know, even giving bullies, even, I hate using the word bullies, but even giving the, you know, the bully the respect allows you to observe them better and maybe see you know what what's what's their drive what's their motivating force so you can so you can attack more on the motivation rather than on the surface actions that they're doing yeah 100% and that's true in war as well you know we respect the enemy absolutely and if you don't respect the enemy if you don't try and learn about them then you're going to have a hard time dealing with them and even earlier you were talking about like in Iraq well, we wanted to understand the local populace and we wanted to, for instance, what you said earlier, sometimes a kid gets paid 50 bucks to go launch a, to go launch a rocket at American troops. He's going to do it because he doesn't have any choice on earning income. So instead of attacking the problem of like, okay, we'll go kill the kids that are shooting rockets, what we actually did and what we tried to do and what we were successful in doing is okay, you know what? We're going to give the local government there money to build a road. And guess what they need to build a road? They need workers. And guess what this 15-year-old kid is doing now? He's out there shoveling pavement or, or pouring concrete. That's the better solution than just killing the, the, the kid that's launching a rocket. So you have to take that, the way that applies, applies across the board. 
you know, I wonder if that and and I'm I'm usually very apolitical on this podcast just because who knows the answers to anything. I don't I certainly don't. But do you think that's related to like now we're in a war in these countries and there's such devastation and 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 sadness. Do you think maybe though a, a fault of uh, American policy in the 90s prior to these wars was that we didn't start building those roads then in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, these war-torn countries that never really were out of war ever. That that I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure where that would have led. There's a good possibility that your hypothesis could be correct and that if we would have continued to if we would have started helping these countries or help them economically more, there's also, you can get into situations where you're helping a country economically, but it doesn't actually help them because mm. they're not, you got to do it properly, right? You, you got you to help countries properly. But you know what? A real simple way to look at this, which is a, a good way to look at it, economy, you know, financial strength is the best tool to solve problems in downtrodden countries without question. People want to have a better life. The people in Iraq, the people in Afghanistan, the people wherever, you know what they want? They want to they make a little more money in their job and they want to be able to, you know, get new tires for their car or get a, get a car or, or plant more crops so they can make more money next year. That's, that's pretty common. It's pretty common. You, you know, you know, what's a, a great book that you, that maybe you, you could look at is, um, it's called Factfulness by this guy, Hans Rosling and Bill Gates is, tweeted that it's his favorite book and and he basically divide, says there's four levels of society in the world you know ranging from wealthiest to the most impoverished and as countries go from let's say level 4 to level 3 to level 2 to level 1 particularly from level 4 to level 3 in poverty to you know they're starting to have some money um the birth rate per per woman goes way down and the reason is is because less kids die in childbirth so the, the 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 sheer fact that this country has more money means less children will die in childbirth means the family needs less kids to work the fields because they they're going to have the kids are going to live yep. and it just makes life better so there there's so much evidence that a the, in general the world is getting better as uh as the world gets wealthier but that wealth particularly applied to a country makes that country healthier you know, and more literate, and people live longer, and there's more jobs, and and so on. So no that, doubt about it. Yeah. So so in terms of nation building, that's 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 almost you know it's clearly that's the that's the direction yeah. as opposed to like inciting people into a a, a fundamentalist religion or whatever. Um, all right. Uh, the warrior kid keeps things neat and is always prepared and ready for action. So. Uh, what does always prepared mean? Prepared and ready for action. Yeah, prepared to go. You know, I added this to, uh, I was doing my kids' podcast the other day, and I added this in. You think about this psychologically. The kid was saying, how do I fall asleep at night? And I said, hey, set up a pattern for the next day, or set up a pattern at night that you go through. Go through a, a ritual. I didn't call it a ritual, but I said, you know, uh, just go through a pattern each night. Brush your teeth, floss your teeth, drink some water, you know, and then I said, prepare your backpack, lay out your clothes for the next day so you can get ready for school quickly or in case there's an emergency at night. Hmm. And I thought to myself, that's good. Because if I was an eight-year-old kid, I didn't care about going to school, but I wanted to be ready for an emergency at night. 
That is cool. Yeah, You're making so, your kid a hero. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, he gets to go to sleep like imagining what could happen. Yeah. So he doesn't get scared. What, is, what was dad talking about? Yeah. But <laughs> Are these, they invading? You know, it's funny. As you read these to me, like that right there, who, who doesn't want their kids to, and who doesn't know that as a human being, it's better to be more organized. You know, you know, like, you know what though? But you asked that question, but I'll, so I'll tell you, little story. I'm not making this podcast about myself, but uh, for several years, I lived in, I, I at one point, several years ago, I threw out all of my belongings, like everything I owned, except for what could fit in one carry-on bag, like a backpack. And then I, and then I stopped renting apartments or houses or whatever. And I just lived in Airbnbs around the country, mostly in the city, but all around the country. And a few months ago, for whatever reason, for many reasons, I decided, you know what? I'm going to rent an apartment. And then this was the first apartment. I'm 50 years old. And this is the first time in my life I've rented an apartment by myself as opposed to with a wife or where I live. I lived previously in like cheap hotels or, you know, with roommates or whatever. I never had the responsibility and somehow to live in my own apartment. And so I rented this apartment a few months ago. I, I furnished it. And something happened that really surprised me. I've been messy all of my life. I have been a horrible mess. Everybody I've ever lived with has complained about it. Just been horrible. But my own place that I am living in by myself, I make the bed every morning and I'm actually clean. And I, I, I'm i always hygienic, but I'm clean now in my environment. I don't even know why. Like I just felt this need to keep my space, my first real space clean. I don't know why that is. I think that's I think that's pretty cool. Maybe I'm an adult now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I think that's pretty cool. You recognize that it's that well, it's kind of cool because you own it, right? Like this is this is your space. Like you said, you own this space and you want that space to be squared away. You were for the past 49 years, you were living in someone else's space. You you just didn't treat I didn't it as give good. a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad now. Yeah, you've got to write a lot of apology letters to these people you've Dear Mom. shacked up with over the years. <laughs> yeah. Gotta write to my wife, my first wife. Um the warrior kid stays humble. I think that's that's pretty obvious. The, not obvious, but clear. The war the warrior kid works hard and always does his best. I like this uh, ninth one, which you add to at the end. I won't give away the end, but you say, I am the warrior kid. Um, I like that you add that as a ninth because it's almost like an affirmation. It's not about you. It's almost like an affirmation to anyone reading this. So how did you view it when you were writing it? Absolutely like that. Like mm -hmm. whoever's reading this is going to see themselves as a warrior kid. And it, and, it, and it almost, it suddenly reminds you of the first eight. Yeah. You have to look back at the first eight to say, oh, what am I again? And, and you know, so go, going into a couple thoughts here, I, I got asked by a kid on, on my kid's podcast the other day, how do you, Uncle Jake, because the, the podcast called Ask Uncle Jake, Warrior Kid, Ask, Ask Uncle Jake. Kid says, how do you know when you're doing the right thing? How do you always do it? And, and I talked about what you talked about earlier, which is, you know, people have codes and Companies have codes, right? Businesses have codes. The mil every branch of the military has a code. Teams, when you play at a sports team, they'll have a code that they've put together. The Ten Commandments is a code that people followed and lived by. There's all these, and that that's what keeps people, you know, what you used earlier is like, you know, you don't want to talk about religion, but, you know, we had some kind of level of codes for us as human beings, yeah. and now they're kind of getting lost. 
Well, if you have a code, if you write your own code, which I especially like, and that's what the book really encourages kids to do is write your own code. And you can use this as a basis, but you write your own code and say, this is what I'm going to live by. This is what I'm going to live by. And if you have something like that, that you've written down, that you hold yourself to that standard, it's going to make it easier for you to hold yourself to that standard, as opposed to just having some some unconnected thoughts in your head about what you might think might be right or might be wrong. When you actually write stuff down and you say, this is me, that has power. It's interesting because, and again, it's like you referred to earlier when 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 you were referring to veterans coming back, there's no, not only is there no, um, you know, America considers itself a religious country, but really it's not. It's really a very secular country. And, and you know, people focus from nine to five on their job. And then, you know, maybe they drink a little at night and then, you know, watch TV, go to sleep, and then repeat. And um, uh, and then there's the other extreme, which you've dealt with, which is fundamentalist, you know, religions that who knows what they're about. They're not really about religion. They're often a, a, more about money than a country like America, but in a weird way, in a twisted way. Yeah. But then you look at the countries that rejected religion completely. So you have like Nazi Germany, communist China, uh, the, the Soviet Union, where up to 100 million people were killed. The, 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 the countries were so violent and authoritarian. And so you see that there is some benefit to having a real code. And what I see with, with these codes, like, like your book and, and many other books that I've looked at, uh, there's almost this, what I'll call solo theism that's developing, which is like you say, find your own code. It doesn't have to be the same as here. Like, you know, not that you would disagree with this, but for instance, you don't talk, like for many people, um, integrity might be the first thing in their code. I'm not saying you're not for integrity, it's probably baked into these rules it's, mm-hmm. itself, but but kind of deciding what's important to you so you build that inner confidence, like, oh, this person just uh, uh, attacked what my, is in, what's my core integrity. And so then you could act from that, from from a real inner core, as opposed to just like wearing a mask and trying to please and you know, just trying to survive and make money and doing whatever it takes. Uh, I think I think this idea of developing a code is is really powerful. So how would like again? You say using this as a basis, but what's the first step if if I wanted to develop my own code and it's slightly different from this? Uh-huh. I could at first look at this and say, "Oh, I'll just take this one, yeah. which is good enough." Yeah, no, it's it's pretty close. Well, it's awesome to see because you know, as the first the first book, he Uncle Jake shows. Mark all these different codes from throughout history, and they're all militaristic codes. You know, it's the samurai code, and it's right. the it's the knights code, and it's the then it's the military, different militaries, U.S. militaries. He shows them all those codes, and says, "Look, you make your own code." And I think that's I think that's what you do, and I think it's I think it's very powerful. And what's really cool is I get little pictures on social media that parents will send me of their kids writing their own warrior code. And, and they'll, they'll have six or seven from this, but then they'll have another one, you know, be nice to my brother and sister, or they'll add in, you know, take out the garbage on Mondays or make sure I clean up the dog poo in the yard. Like they'll add their own things that, that make it theirs, but it really does give you a solid foundation to, to stand, stand with. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, if you were to if you were to change this in any way, I mean, I know this is your code, but how have you seen people in other ways that you relate to? Like, so you might not say take out the garbage, but what have you seen where you've said, "Oh, yeah, maybe that's 
I could even add that to this code, that, but and it's there's, different. There's a bunch of different examples, but and one of the things about this series of books, we're on number two right now. This code is going to evolve, mm-hmm. and it's going to show that as you grow and as you learn, you'll add things to your code and mm-hmm. you'll evolve. And as you know, the the end of this book, there's some there's some changes to the code or additions to the code. So yeah, evolution's important because as you reach different stages in life, um. You know, sometimes you go from, uh, you know, striving to provide for your family, and some, and then later on you go towards how can you best have impact on society. And it's two very different things that might require different codes, but the different stages of life require different emphasis. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you bring up the Ten Commandments because that also is essentially a judicial code. Most of the things are thou shalt not. Yeah, you know, that's I think there's true. Only, I think there might be only one commandment. I forget what it is. Uh, where you should do something. <laughs> you know what it is? I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Honor their mother and father. Yeah. There you go. So that's important because you have to work in their fields. <laughs> so, and I'm trying to think, like you know, and people say, like, like the 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 Tao Te Ching, which is the, the code for Taoism. There's a lot of theory that that's actually not a religious code, but a political code. It was mm-hmm. a document to a potentially a document to a king or an emperor and advice for, for such a person. I'm trying to think of other... Uh, there, there's all, all kinds of codes. I mean, uh, I did a podcast recently about judo, the, the martial art judo. And that guy, uh, Kano, who was trying to... He was trying to create a system for all of Japan to like live by. That's what his goal was. Hmm. And it was a, a, about a lot more than just being able to grapple against other people and beat them. It was about making a system of education and a code of ethics and values for the whole country. That's what judo was really trying to do. And it's it's a pretty cool system. Well, in Japan, so interesting because with almost every, with, with so many different parts of their society, like take the tea ceremony. The, the, the tea ceremony is not like, oh, here's some tea and they pour some tea. Oh, yeah. It's a, it, you have to, you could, there's huge, you could spend a lifetime becoming a tea grandmaster and, and it's such a ritualized code but internally, it builds such discipline and confidence that it's it's one of those things that are worth learning if that's what you're into. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting too because it took me a little while to get to covering samurai, like like I did uh, Musashi. I did his book of five rings, and I did the novel Musashi, which is an incredible novel. So it's one of the few novels I've done on the podcast. But so I, I covered that, and I covered this book about judo but the reason it took me a while to get there mentally was because of world war ii because those codes were twisted and and turned the the japanese imperial Hmm. army into just incredibly brutal and savage The, the the atrocities that they committed were absolutely heinous and so I had to kind of get through that myself because I it, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I had a bad taste in my mouth. You know, I guess, you know, someone 50 years from now could look back on, you know, the Islamic fundamentalists and say the same thing has happened with many of the, much of the code outlined in the Quran that uh, uh, it was twisted by these fundamentalist leaders who are just serving their own purposes, their own selfish purposes, and not necessarily living by the by the codes of the Quran, but using that to manipulate these kids who are firing missiles. Yeah, that's a that's an absolutely f- 
great analogy. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if we do look back in 50 years and, and have those kind of thoughts. Mm. But because those codes, they can be twisted. And that can end up being a very horrible thing. Like I said, the, you know, if, if you read The Rape of Nan King, that, that's one of those podcasts that I did when I covered The Rape of Nan King where I, I was literally, I just got to a point where I was numb and I was kind of reading it just numb because it's just so graphic and sickening what happened and i mean what's what's crazy about that story is this book the rape of nan king was written and the the girl that wrote the book she wrote it in 19 obviously 1995 or 97 i mean it's, it's a relatively recent book and when she got done writing the book it was a new york times bestseller and and she was an you know she was an academic so she was like in that world right where having a new york times bestseller is the crowning achievement in many ways and she was extremely successful with it and she got depressed and she killed herself her name was iris chang and her mom wrote a book called the woman who could not forget and that book by iris chang's mom starts off with iris chang's suicide note it's incredibly dark, but that... Why did Iris Chang kill herself? You know, she had some depression problems, but the the mother in the book talks about the drugs, this, the, the psycho... Psycho... Uh, yeah, the antipsychotic drugs that she was put on and the method that they put them on, put her on them, and then when she'd go on them and pull them off, pull her off of them and put her on another one... And there were, she, she believed from the book, the way I read the book, the mom believed that these, these psychotherapeutic drugs are what, what ended up causing her to kill herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never read that book. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read it. But now finally we get to chapter one, we get to chapter one (laughs) of the, the way of the warrior kid, Mark's mission. I have uh, tons of things bookmarked, but I'll get to some some important stuff. Essentially, throughout this book, Uncle Jake is sort of uh, kind of demonstrates. It's interesting the the teaching technique. Uncle Jake never really says do this or do that, but kind of um, it's not even sort of shows by example. It's sort of like just little nudges. What if what if Mark had ever really what? If, uh, uh, this is a little giveaway. Uh, but you know, Mark's learning jujitsu, uh, and he doesn't want to, he loves learning. He loves training because perhaps it brings back memories of training with his uncle. Um, but he doesn't want to compete. He's not feeling it. He doesn't want to compete. And you, and uncle Jake, I was about to say you, but uncle Jake is sort of saying, well, why don't he's, it's more of the Socratic method. Well, why don't you want to compete? Well, don't you want to, um, you know, train for a competition and and have that experience and uh what if mark had really just said nah i'm not i'm not gonna do that i just want to train well i think that uncle jake would have said okay yeah no but 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 it's interesting that you make the point that once he does get you know it's you don't make this point directly but once he does start uh competing or, or or he does sign up for compete i hope i'm not giving away too much 
It's okay. Uh, you know, I, I think the book is aimed at kids, and I think that most kids won't be listening to this podcast. So I, 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 I have a go, huge kid audience. Oh, okay. All twelve-year-olds to fourteen. No, oh, okay. No, oh, okay. <laughs> right on. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. But I'll uh, stop talking about the rape of Nan Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're they're cool with it too. They're yeah. they've, no, would, they've been would, there. Done I would. It. I think you can talk openly about the book. So so so, comp, one thing I've noticed about competition, not that I've competed in jujitsu. Um, but one thing I've noticed about competition is it does hone your learning a lot more. It like amps it up 10x. So uh, I feel so, I, I don't know why I feel this way talking to you. I feel so dorky talking to you. So I, as a kid, was a very competitive chess player, a very mm -hmm. successful competitive chess player. And, you know, doing that forced me to really learn. You can't really learn without putting it to the test in something where the stakes make you nervous. Mm -hmm. If you're not gonna be nervous about the stakes and, and scared about what's going to happen, then nothing's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, to answer both your questions or to talk about these subjects a little bit more, number one, what you just said is completely accurate about everything. Like well, the experience you had playing chess is the, the same experience you'll have with jujitsu, with basketball, with taking tests in school. I mean, you, you have to raise your blood level. But let's go back to your earlier question about what would Uncle Jake have done. I think Uncle Jake, if, if he said, no, I'm not going to compete, you know what Uncle Jake would have said? He would have said, well, why not talk to me about it? Uncle Jake would have eventually convinced and, and yeah, convinced Mark that the best thing he could do is go and compete. I think he would have he won the logical argument. Right, because I guess the path from from here to there is that Jake loved training so much. I mean, sorry, Mark loved training so much. So Uncle Jake could have somehow asked him, you know, how he would have thought the training would be different if he was competing. Yeah. And that would have kind of shed some light on the issue for, for Mark. Yeah. And even when he says, well, I trained to get better, Mark says. And then Uncle Jake says, well, if you want to get better, one of the things that's going to make you even better is if you compete. So he would have won this argument because it's the right answer. Right. And given that it's not like Mark didn't like jujitsu, he already loved it right. and loved training right. for it. It's not that much to, to, it's not that big of a leap to take that path of, oh, okay, well, if you love training anyway, this is a better way to train if you're training for competition. Yeah. Now, the reason that I backed off immediately and said, oh, I, I'd be okay. Because I. You just said you were J Uncle Jake. You, you, get, you admitted you're Uncle Jake. <laughs> well, I, the reason that my assessment of Uncle Jake was to back off immediately is because I did this with my kids. And especially my older two daughters, I pushed them too hard and I pushed them into competition too hard. And I'd make them compete at higher levels against older kids, against heavier kids. And they'd lose more often than they would win. And so guess what? It's not fun. And if it's not fun, they're not going to want to do it. And so I pushed them away from jujitsu for a while because they just, they didn't want to do it. I made it not fun for them. And whereas with my son, I was able to back him off early enough that I didn't, that, that he continued to love it and do it. And he's exceptional at it. And then like my youngest daughter, who there's a seven year gap, my youngest daughter, I just want you to, my main goal for her is for jujitsu to be fun for her. That's my main goal. And that's why I'm a little bit scarred to make sure that I'm not pushing the kids. Cause you know, because if you push kids too hard, they're going to rebel against you harder. If you guide them and you give them the freedom of choice themselves, but you 
educate them so that they make the right choice, that's the proper path for a parent or an uncle or a mentor. You don't force the something down someone's throat. You know, Leif tells, Leif who wrote Extreme Ownership with me, he tells a, a, a great story that's right up this alley, which is he was, we were doing some training and in a place called the Kill House where you're maneuvering elements through a big building and you're shooting targets and you're handling hostages and it's, it's pretty chaotic. And you are part of something called a train, which is a bunch of guys in, in, a, in a line and you're going from room to room and as you progress through, the, the train goes through the house. And I was in a position as a trainer, I was up top watching, looking down on the house. So you're in basically catwalks and you can look down and see where everyone is. And I look down and Leif is in the back of the train. And the way he tells the story is, is, is really cool because he says, you know, Jocko says, hey, Leif, why are you in the back of the train? Because I knew he shouldn't be there. I said, why are you in the back of the train? And he's like, well, this is what I was taught. This is where I was taught we were supposed to be. And I said, well, can you see what's going on up front? And he says, well, no, I have no idea what's going on in front, up front. And I said, well, do you think you can guide them correctly if you don't know what they're doing? He's like, no, I can't. It's like, well, what do you think you could do that would make you be able to know what was going on more up front? And he says, well, I could probably move up the train and get more towards the front of the train. And I said, yeah, so what's stopping you from doing that? And he says, well, just what I've been told to do. And I said, do you think that what you were told to do could be wrong? And he said, well, I guess it could be. And I said, I think you might be right. And he said, okay. And he moved to the middle of the train where he could understand what was going on up front. So when you're right about something, then you can get there eventually, mm. but you don't need to force it. Because if I would have said, hey, you're in the wrong spot, get in the middle of the train. Well, I didn't explain anything to him. It wasn't his idea. He's mad at me. Now he doesn't think it's good to be in the middle of the train just because he's got a negative attitude. Very problematic. Not, not only that, you're telling him to go against his code. Right, Instead right. of kind of, of taking him to higher principles yes. and having him assess his code. Yes, if you can get the person to reveal, if, you, if, it can, if it can be revealed to the person themselves instead of you putting it into their head and forcing it and imposing it on them, you're going to be infinitely better. It's so funny because I tried to... Um, my, my oldest daughter is 19 and I tried to convince her not to go to college. I really didn't want her to go to college. I felt like it would be a better experience. Whether I was right or wrong, I don't know, but I thought it would be a better experience for what she wanted to do in life to try to try these at least a year or two doing something else. And I would try to use logic and, and I found for a while I was getting a little upset at her and she would just turn, you know, being a teenager, she would just turn around and walk away while I was talking. And I realized, you know, I might, never convince her about college, but I'm still her father. And when she's 28 years old and having a problem, I want her to feel comfortable turning to me. And so I completely backed off mm -hmm. and I guided and she's going to college again. She knows it's not what I want to do, but I'm, she knows also I'm fully supportive of her. And I think, I think it's really important to, if, if, if you were going to make a code for the warrior parent, I think guiding rather than Forcing is almost rule number one. Yeah, and there's a possibility. That you'll write that book. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll probably write that book. But there's a possibility that had you from the beginning guided instead of forced, you might have had a better chance of getting her. Now, I think that since you already went back and rebuilt that relationship, she might talk to you at the end of the semester and be, you know, Dad, I don't know if I want to go back. to. I might take two years. I might take a year off. That could very well happen. It's yeah. not going to happen now if she listens to this podcast because she knows that we're, we're plotting. <laughs> oh, she doesn't her. listen to anything I do. <laughs> okay, cool. I make fun of her all the time. <laughs> so, so she could come back now that you've rebuilt that. And because when you're projecting at her, she, she rejects your statements. But if you have her, if you're aligned with her and you're saying, yeah, you know, college is pretty cool. 
It's really cool, actually. College is great. And you're going to have a really good time there. You know what else is, it's always good too. You know, you can always think about taking some time to learn about some other things before you go. Or You know what I mean? Like if you start those conversations instead of being directive, you're going to end up in such a much better position. Yeah, no, you're, you're very, you're very, very correct. Um, and in general, it's it, the, the main blessing to me is that it just improved my relationship with her to not every time I see her like, oh, you know, these statistics about jobs and college, it's not yeah. true. And, so, and there'll be some parents that will hear this and be like, well, that's ridiculous. You're going to let your kids just do whatever you want. And that's not, that's not the case. The case is if your kids start going off the rails where they're going to do something and you know, my rule is pretty, I give pretty b- wide berth, but like, if you're going to do something that's going to seriously negatively impact the rest of your life, we're not going to let that happen, obviously. Now that hasn't happened with any of my kids, right? So the, the guiding is good enough right now. I haven't had a kid go off the rails, go in some situation that they're going to ruin the rest of their life. And, and if that happened, you know, I'd have to go out and be very directive and impose something on them. Even then I would do my best to make it their idea and, you know, do my best. But at some point, you know, you're not going to let in same thing with subordinate, you know, people that work for you. You don't let them just go off the rails and fail a mission because it was their idea and you want them to carry out their idea. No, you go, you bring them back in and say, hey, look, this isn't a good idea. Here's why. You know, you should write the, the you should call it the warrior code for leadership. <laughs> well, I wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and I have another book coming out called The Dichotomy of, the Dichotomy of Leadership and, or Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy of Leadership and those books, that's what this is. Everything that I'm saying is in those books. Okay, good. Yeah. But here's my idea real quickly. Put both, put ads for both titles on Facebook and just just small budget, $20, $50, put ads for both and see which one people click on more. And that's the better title. Like throw, t- throw 20 titles up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's just statistically, you'll see what people respond to more. So what's interesting is I was just talking about this. I was just doing another interview and the guy was asking me about building my brand, right? And, you know, how do you, you know, how do you build a brand and all this stuff? And I said, look, I'm, I'm don't, you don't, I don't have any information for you on building my brand. Cause what I do is, is what I do. You know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to ABC test multiple things because which one's going to sell better. I, I don't, I I'm doing what I believe in. I, I, I get that. One like, of the most important things about the title of that book is that title, the dichotomy of leadership I haven't heard people talk about that. I, I I get it, and you're and you're saying basically that uh, leaders are confronted often with two very opposing decisions to make constantly, yes. and and that's important to learn how to deal with those opposing yes. factions that might seem to be equally correct. Yes. So I get it. So, yes, you so just as opposed to like I'm thinking, how can you sell more books? You're thinking of actually what it means to be a leader. Yeah, and <laughs> and also how can I most help people? That's right. of much bigger concern to me, which in the long run, guess what? It'll help me sell more books, but that doesn't, I can't, I don't ever let some short-term gratification of selling more books make guide my decision-making process. No, that's I think, not really who I am. I think, I think that that's good. And that's an example of operating from, from your core. So, yeah. um, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, it's on, on the book. I wanted to ask, uh, you talk about consistency chapter 13 and you know, it reminds me of uh, the concept. What you call consistency reminds me of the concept of kaizen in in Japanese, which is um, small but incremental improvements every day. 
And that's what you really mean by consistency. Because someone could make the same mistakes every day and they're not going to improve. You're really saying consistency plus a little bit of improvement will make someone better. Uh, uh, I think. Would you? Would you? Would you say it's it's different? Or no? I think you've got it. I think one workout in the gym is not going to improve your health. Damn. Yeah. Even if even if you went and did a twenty hour workout one day, that's not going to improve your overall health. You know, you've got to do it consistently. You've got to eating a good meal. Like if you and I go out for dinner and we eat a really nice clean meal, that's not going to improve our health that one meal. But if we do that consistently over a longer period of time, yeah. Studying, cramming for a test. Sure. You'll get some knowledge in there for a little bit, but it's not going to help your long-term goals of becoming a smarter human being. You know, um, but still, if you're, let's say you work out in a gym, but you do it wrong. So many people don't know how to, how to weight lift and they do it wrong and they hurt their muscles they, or they, they damage themselves in some long-term way. Um, I'm not saying that happens commonly, but usually people need a trainer to really show them how to use equipment in the, in the gym. Uh, consistency won't help them there, but really focusing on how they can, what are the tools they need to improve? Like a mentor, um, the right equipment, you know, you know, being guided in the right way, they need to understand the tools of improvement as well as consistency, it seems. Yeah, I'll give you that. And I'll also say that, you know, for that example, just because you brought it up, I kind of <laughs> have to say, people say, well, I don't really know what to do in the gym. Go in the gym or go for a run. You know what I mean? Go well, do I agree push-ups, with that. sit-ups, and pull-ups, and that, that's what you need to know, and you'll, you'll improve your health if you I, do it consistently. I agree with that. Doing something is better than doing yeah, nothing. Yeah. And in chess, for example, is there's a saying: better to have a plan than no plan at all. Um, but how good be- did you get at chess? Uh, master level. Okay. So and I was won all sorts of things, but um, uh, but it gave me a lot of good quotes about competition. <laughs> um, uh, there's one quote actually that I wrote today in an article. You know, everybody when they loses always says to their opponent, "Oh, you just got lucky." But there's a quote: "Only the good players are lucky." So, and I'm sure the same thing holds true in Absolutely. every every area of life. Um, I bookmarked this chapter "lazy day," but, I'm, but now I'm, now my brain's lazy, and I forget why. Uh, uh, yeah. So my wife read that chapter the other day, and it's pretty much in the chapter. Mark, Mark, he's all tired from working because he's created his own business, and he's mowing lawns, and he's pulling weeds, and he's doing jujitsu, and he's building his bicycle, and so he's just he's just tired, and and finally. Uh, he says, Uncle Jake, can I have a day off? And he says, Uncle Jake says, okay. So he's all happy, takes the day off, watches video games, watches TV, sits around, does nothing all day. Uncle Jake comes home that night and he was rock climbing and he was he was doing studying about World War One, and he was writing letters and he was designing a house. He's doing all this cool stuff. And, and you know, Mark says, well, I wish I could have done that with you. And Uncle Jake says, you could have, but it was your day off. And then he feels all bad and he, he's, you know, it comes out that he didn't have a good day, you know. He, he thought he needed a day off, but now it doesn't feel good. And the point that he makes is like, when you have a lazy day, at the end of the day, it never feels good. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think I've taken a real day off in like maybe 25 years or so. <laughs> um, but I, now I remember what I wanted to say also. Uh, I have an idea for Mark, okay. which Uncle Jake didn't suggest to Mark. Awesome. Um, you know, Uncle Jake gives the very good advice, make a flyer, put the flyer over around town. He gets six customers to, for mowing the lawn and pulling weeds. And Uncle Jake also suggests add another uh, feature that you could do, which is pulling out the weeds. Everyone else is just saying they'll mow the lawns. 
here's one more idea for Mark. He should go around to the houses that have the biggest lawns and the most weeds because yeah. then he can still put up the signs but target a little bit on his actual ideal customers. Yeah, see, this is where my personal failure at marketing was shined through very clearly to you as an A-B tester. You're like, hey, you don't know your market well enough, and that's clearly a place where I'm deficient. So I, I definitely like your suggestion. But then again, you could have said, you could have responded to me, um, well, the people who had the biggest weeds clearly don't give a shit about their weeds, so they're not going to hire good you. Good point, good point. So I don't, I don't know yeah. the full answer, but there's something there. You don't lose anything by walking up and asking, though, right? There you go. I that's, think, that I was, think that should right. have been my response to your hypothetical response. I think you're right. No, I'm wrong. That's what I think. <laughs> um, let me just see if there's any... I mean, I have a bunch of things bookmarked, but I know we're, we're near the end of our time. Um, oh, yeah. What were you... What were you, you put something in your water we were going to oh, ask yeah. before so, the podcast. So, so yeah, I, I, I make supplements. And this is one of the supplements. It's called Discipline. What's in it? It's just got some both nootropic ingredients. So it makes you mentally sharper. And it's got some physical kind of things that make you physically more prepared for situations. So I wanted something because, you know, they make nootropics that you take just when you're going to be doing something cognitive. And then they make kind of pre-workout things when you're going to be doing something physical. But I needed, I need both because the, for pre-mission, you need to be mentally sharp and physically sharp. So I just combined them into one, hmm. and that's what I drink. Are you going to start a company with doing that? You already have it. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's well, you, what what's in the nootropics? What's uh, what what do you it's, use? It's I I don't have a list of the ingredients, but it's the stuff that makes your cognitive abilities sharp. Do you feel it right away? Uh, or like do, do I, you I, definitely I, feel it? Oh yeah, you definitely feel it. Yeah. yeah. You definitely feel it. I want to try it. Yeah. I know. How, how do you find your company? What's what's the so originmain.com. So origin and then the state Maine. So I, I I have a business up there that I'm a part owner of, and we make actually we make apparel, athletic apparel, and we make it all in America, which is cool because no one really does that. And we specifically for jujitsu, but then we also have a supplement line, and so you can go to originmain.com and you can get this and you can get the products that we make. And do you put it in a liquid because uh, in a capsule it doesn't necessarily get digested into the blood? The actually, there's so many ingredients in it that it needs to be it needs to be bigger than a pill. <laughs> so we put it in somewhere where we could mix it in. I always wonder with these supplements where you take like zinc and it's like a hard capsule. Does it really get broken down by the body? I think capsules, yeah, capsules get broken down by the body. You can put it in water and watch it get broken down. Yeah, I'll try that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never did that. That's a good way to think. I never did that. Um, all right. Well, look, Jocko Willink, I'm so glad you came back on the podcast. It's been so much fun. Uh, come back for the next book. When's the next book coming out? September. September. Are you going to you're going to be back in New York? I'll be back here and we'll sit down and we'll do this again and we won't have anyone waiting to come in. So yeah, we'll just, we can talk who for hours. Booked only an hour and a half of this. Jay, did you screw up? <laughs> No, the correct response is, you know what, Jay, I should have given you a little bit better guidance on how much time we might need. It's my fault that we didn't book the long, longer thing. Well, by the way, Extreme Ownership, written by the one and only Jocko Willink, is one of my favorite books because I really do feel the three most important words anyone could say in the learning process is, it's my fault. And so we're, we're doing this podcast right now directly above a comedy club, and I have seen so many comedians bomb and then come off the stage and say that was a crappy audience <laughs> and just totally throw the blame on the audience when 
you should just ne- it's just you should never do that. A professional should never do that. And and I think that that's kind of a, a a metaphor for everything in every situation. It's like the it's like only the good players get lucky. There's no there are no bad audiences. There are no bad stocks. There are no bad stockbrokers. There are no bad doctors. It's it's your fault if something happens. So Jay, I should have given you better guidance on how much time I needed <laughs> awesome. with Jocko here. So Jocko Willink. Um, author of so many great books, but this latest one is The Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission. Not only do I encourage people to read it, it's a very fast read, uh, get it for your kids, whatever, but really study The Warrior Kid code. And I think this idea of, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm making up a word, solo theism, coming up with your own code, which Jocko suggests, is really important. I think it's a really valuable exercise, even if you have a new code every single day. I mean, maybe that is not really a code, but I don't know. Maybe your code is have a new code every single day. I don't know. But Jocko, thanks again, and and see you the next time um, you have another book out. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. Good talking to you. Thanks, Jocko. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.